0: You're listening to the Strong Towns Podcast. Hey, everybody, this is Chuck Morone. Welcome back to the Strong Towns Podcast. Earlier this summer, I wrote a piece about public engagement. I had attended a a crazy uh, meeting in my hometown where I sat in the middle of a table and on the left side watched some well-intentioned bureaucrats ask questions that were not well received or well responded to from the other side of the table. I then looked at the other side of the table and, and saw all these puzzled people trying to figure out what the bureaucrats wanted in a response. When I finally intervened and started asking some real questions, we got some great input, but it was painful to the people on the end of the table. I wrote my piece and it was called Public Engagement is Worthless. And a good friend of ours from the early days of the blog, Ruben Anderson from British Columbia, wrote a, a follow up piece that took me one step further said, Public engagement is worse than worthless. And I said, Ruben, it's about time we chat. So I've got on the line with me today, Ruben, welcome to the Strong Downs podcast, finally.
1: Thank you so much. And Chuck, let me say how completely giddy I feel to be <laughs> talking with you. I, we couldn't be more different in a lot of ways, but I'm just your number one fan. I'm a huge fan of you.
0: Well, the feeling is mutual. I am giddy as well. I, w- I woke up <laughs> today going, oh, yes, this is on my calendar. I know I've told you this before. There's a couple times uh, very early on in the blog. I, I mean, I'm talking like 2009, 2010, when I was pushing the envelope intellectually for me and going into some space that was um, was uncomfortable. It, it was new territory. And, you know, you whenever you write publicly, you expose yourself to ridicule. That's a real challenge. And I wrote one particular piece that I thought the people around me here are going to hate. They're going to laugh at me. They're going to make fun of me. I'm going to be a a joke. This is it. I, I just slipped my own professional throat. And the very first comment was from you. And it was, wow, my mind is blown. This is awesome. Please keep writing. I can't describe to you how important that was to me. At that moment in time, to have this kind of friend from the ether kind of reach out and say, "No, no, you, uh, you keep going, pal." So thank you for that. I really like can't understate how important that was.
1: It's incredible. It's very moving for me. You know, I also feel like I spend a lot of my—if you can call my work a profession—I <laughs> spend a lot of my professional—I <laughs> spend a lot of my professional life being the guy in the room that everybody hates it feels incredible to have offered you support at a time that you needed it. Cause uh, yeah, I I think the work that you're doing is so important.
0: I was in the army. I went to grad school. Both of those experiences were places where I showed up was clearly like, not, (laughs) not going to be one of the the mainstream people. And I looked around and I found (laughs) people in both of those places who were kind of the sit in the back and roll your eyes and be like, yeah, Okay. Um, and I kind of feel like had you been in either of those places with me, we would have been like best pals going, "Okay come on. <laughs> more pushups. Yeah, yeah okay, whatever. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So tell everybody where you're from and and give us a little bit of your background.:
1: Well, I grew up in the Okanagan in British Columbia, which is the Okanagan in British Columbia and the Okanagan in Washington State are the same Okanagan. We spell it one vowel differently, but it's the same valley, a really long valley. We're also famous for apples, just like uh, Washington is famous for apples. So I grew up, my parents are actually, they, they were both born in the U.S. and they moved to Canada around the Vietnam War. And so I grew up this hippie kid in the bush in the Okanagan, and that was, you know, that was great. It was a, it was a sheltered little life. <laughs> and then I, I moved here to Victoria to go to university. So that was my first kind of big step into what was for me a huge city, right? And is really less than a quarter million people in the entire region. So I got my first degree in sculpture. Obviously, I didn't use <laughs> in in any meaningful way. And then I lived in Japan for a couple of years. I owned a restaurant for a few years. And then I went back to school again in the 2000s and got a degree in industrial design. It seems like huge parts of my life. My memory is just blank. Like, I went to design school because I wanted to make heirloom products. I wanted to reduce waste. So I wanted to design beautiful things that everybody could have that would last a long time. I look back now and it's like, wow, I had this huge environmentalist drive, that sent me back to school. And I have no idea when I became an environmentalist. Like it, it, right, kind, of, right. it kind of surprised me. Right. <laughs> so so I went back to school to, to do this product design and very quickly realized that even green products were not going to reduce the damage we, we do to the ecosystem very significantly. You know, I was constantly on the verge of dropping out of, of school, but I ended up sticking it out. And then um, right after graduation, a guy was advertising for a designer and it turned out he worked for a, you know, kind of a big Canadian design house called Umbra. He needed a designer to help him out. He was moving up to Canada to live on a beautiful little Island. So since I was an older student, you know, I already had one degree under my belt. I, I was, probably 10 years older than most of my compatriots, I was the only one, it appeared, that actually had a resume prepared. (laughs) So I emailed him a resume and a portfolio. And I think because no one else applied, I got the job. I ended up working with this guy. Fascinating. You know, we were just making garbage picture frames and lamps and clocks and things like that, like just stuff to fill rooms and houses, which he called Ningy Ning. This was his, his word for it. It was hard for me to get out of bed in the morning to go to work to make more garbage, but it was super fascinating. I ended up living in a hotel in China for five weeks, and we would get up in the morning and be driven to a factory. We would tour the factory to see what tools they actually physically had, and then we would go to their lunchroom and start designing things that they could build with their tools.
0: That's crazy. That's crazy. <laughs> it, it was
1: such a it was such a fascinating approach to design. You know, it showed me kind of the scale of manufacturing in China. Like I went to this one factory where they made um, cast plastics, cast resin things, <laughs> and statuettes, and whatnot. And uh, one of the things they made was recirculating water fountains, like the little water fountain that bubbles water, you know, or makes mist or whatever that you can buy at, at the hardware store. And so I went back and asked our guide. And he said they sent three 40-foot shipping containers every week of just recirculating water fountains just to the United States. (laughs) So Uh, that's just one factory. And it wasn't a particularly large factory on Chinese scale. Just one factory was sending three 40-foot shipping containers of just recirculating water fountains. (laughs) So
0: (laughs) Mind-boggling in scale.
1: Yeah, totally (laughs) mind-boggling. I desperately was trying to not do design. And I ended up uh, drinking beer with the manager of the sustainability group of the city of Vancouver. And that was an interesting time. There was, there was a few sort of high level managers in government that knew that design was important, but they didn't know what it was. And so there was a couple guys that were like, I want you to be around <laughs> and they didn't know what to do with me, but they wanted me to be there. So that was a very interesting time in my life. Yeah, I worked with the sustainability group. Uh, That was just before the Olympics came to Vancouver. So that was a huge time where we were trying to do some big things. And I also got seconded to the planning department. So this was my first big work in urban design on a big kind of city planning, replanning project called Eco Density, which was a disaster in many ways, but was also really interesting and awesome. And then so out of all of this, it's still like, okay, so design cities, people, consumerism, you know, I became really interested in behavior change. And that's where my focus ultimately ended going, is behavior change. I worked in a regional government on pro-environmental behavior. So that's things like recycling, water conservation. And so that's kind of where my focus is now. Then I I met my now wife. We moved back to Victoria to kind of get closer to family and also to have more space to garden and things like that like we we really wanted to downscale our life away from the city Vancouver has now become incredibly tense and unpleasant city to my taste (laughs) so we wanted to get out of that so now we we live in Victoria which is a beautiful little town that is still suffering its own like rash of condos and and you know Canada looked at the U.S.'s mortgage crisis and financial crisis and was like, kind of like, hold my beer. Right. You know, we're going (laughs) to, we're going to show you how to do a mortgage crisis. (laughs) So
0: we we are still like, Good idea. (laughs) (laughs)
1: yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So we're, we're still, the real estate prices are starting to soften here in Canada, but it's, it's just, we're, we're in for
0: a world of hurt. Well, I have to say one of the things that just on a personal level I enjoy and your wife kind of outs you every now and then as being really handy. You do have a fantastic garden and you are pretty handy. You know, I saw some shelves that you built and some other things. You seem to have downshifted into a sweet life. Is that a, maybe a good way to put it?
1: Yeah, I would say not sweet, but meaning meaningful is what we're kind of going for. So I, I do writing myself and the website, my web name is smallanddeliciouslife.com that kind of encapsulates what we're trying to do. You know, we want to be, we want to live small and we want to live delicious. So we focus a lot on good food and good drink and eating dinner with good people. You know, we just find that food tastes different when you pull it out of the ground yourself. You know, when you spent the year preparing the soil and planting the seeds and pulling the weeds and watering, the carrots are incredible. And similarly, you know, we, we raise animals for meat. And so having to kill an animal and cook it is, you know, it's not anything I take joy in, but the richness of connection with the ecosphere is incredible.
0: Yeah. I grew up on a farm here in in central Minnesota and, you know, we did one of the kind of famous family jokes, my wife and I started seeing each other and hanging out and and dating. I I don't like to say dating now because my daughter's 14, but when, when my wife, we met when we were both 14 <laughs> and started uh, kind of, you know, going to the school activities together and holding hands and that stuff, you know, when we were 15. And it kind of progressed from there, obviously. But one day she was over at our house and we were, Sitting at the kitchen table, and we had grilled i don't know hamburgers or steak or whatever, you know, which we did pretty often because we had uh, beef cattle. She was looking out in the fields, and the cows you know we always had four or five cows and they were standing out there in the field, right out the window, and she said, "I, where, where's Bucky? Like, I, I don't see I, the <laughs> one cow's name named Bucky. And my dad's like, well, you're, you're awfully close to Bucky right now. <laughs> in fact, <laughs> uh-huh. it's hard to relate to people who, who don't have this experience, but there's a certain respectful intimacy that comes from consuming food that you, you grow, particularly when it's a living creature whose eyes you've looked into, you know, struggles you've kind of been there with, you know, we would birth a lot of these cows, you know, that was a humbling and eye-opening experience to, to go through. We would eat them at the end of the day. And that was part of how you lived. And it certainly makes you uh, look differently at a McDonald's hamburger and appreciate, I think, the tension maybe that goes with the food that we consume. Yeah.
1: Our family's version of that is we had uh, a goat named Abby, who we had for, uh, you know, I don't know how long we had Abby, probably like eight years or something like that. So she was an incredible milker, great mother, you know, so just a fantastic goat. And, uh, you know, she got old (laughs) and, uh, and she died. And Abby was so old that she was incredibly tough right so the only the only way to actually eat her was to grind her up. so we we ground Abby up into ground goat and we would eat spaghetti for a couple of years afterwards. you know, we'd be eating spaghetti, and we would always mention Abby, you know, so it was an incredible ongoing relationship. and even you know like you raise if you raise a hundred head or something like that, you don't get to know them all. so but having like an eight year relationship with an animal and then bringing them into your body, you know, new cells, new of my skin and muscle cells, my growing brain, you know, all of those things were, were nourished and came from Abby. So it's, uh, yeah, it's an incredible intimacy.
0: I learned years ago, a little bit more about ancient Jewish practices. You know, we, we look at, I'm a Catholic and oftentimes the Jewish temple is portrayed as this Kind of place, you know, bordering on paganism or like Aztec rites where, you know, someone's ripping out the heart of a live beast and pouring the blood over whatever. And it it wasn't until later on that I I became maybe a little bit more aware of some of the backdrop of actually the idea of sharing a meal with God. This is something that we put our energy into uh, nurturing. We're now going to take the best of our flock and, you know, we will eat this, we will consume this ourselves, but we're also going to, you know, share part of this in a sacrifice with, you know, our deity in a sense, as a way of drawing closer, you know, that, that whole kind of circle of intimacy, I guess, between man and creature and, and the divine. I actually found it to be kind of beautiful in a way, in a way that I hadn't appreciated before.
1: Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's it's so, you know, we should maybe split this podcast into two parts and we can talk about religion in one <laughs> and public engagement in another. My wife is really increasing her practice of, of animism. You know, and of course, when you look at Catholicism, right, you take the, the body of Christ and the blood of Christ into your mouth. <laughs> you know, this is a direct, it's a, absolutely a direct offering to the ancestors.
0: And they're very serious about that. My daughters both went through uh, the First Communion. I'm not a very good Catholic. I go and I, I do the best I can and I, I try very hard. And I find a lot of peace in trying. But, uh, you know, I think if I were lined up against a wall and given the catechism, it, you know, I'd, I'd struggle a little bit. Um, they're <laughs> yeah. not joking. I mean, that is, uh, that's, a yeah. very, that's a very deep part of it. Uh-huh. Yeah. yeah. The animism. Uh-huh. I had to look that up because uh, I didn't know what you meant by that. But it's telling me in Google that the attribution of a soul to plants, inanimate objects, and natural phenomena. Am I missing something?
1: That's good. I think there'd be various schools. Like I actually just looked up uh, You know, my introduction to what I think of animism was when I was living in Japan. Because the indigenous Shinto religion there is often described as animist though apparently, I don't know, people who do religious studies say that it's not strictly (laughs) animist. The first kind of breakthrough of understanding I had was a shrine that was built at a spring in Japan. So my brain was just like, wow, okay, you know, having been raised as highly rational atheist family to suddenly see that it's like, oh, of course there's a god here. If there wasn't a god here, then there wouldn't be a spring coming out of the ground. (laughs) You know, so the the simple logic of the presence of spirit or soul inside, inside of things. And, you know, the, the serious animists, the people who are really into this, <laughs> but even Taoist lessons talk about time scales that are just simply longer than humans can understand. So then the animists would talk about the mountain people or the tree people or the grass people or the river people. So the, the mountain people are just moving very slowly. They're moving much more slowly than you or I can see, (laughs) but they're still people with, you know, souls and thoughts and feelings inside this incredibly long term time scale. Personally, I can't wrap my brain. I can't inhabit that belief very often. As you say, I'm a bad animist, right? Right, (laughs) Uh, right. But I I try to be better at it.
0: (laughs) I was reading this past weekend... There's all these articles about AI and, and the emergent AI and what have you. I was reading more of a spiritual piece where it actually talked about our ability to perceive the world. And people who study the brain and study how the brain works from cognitive psychologists all the way to biologists grasp that like the brain is a simple set of heuristics to understand the world around us. We don't see an in infrared because that wouldn't really be useful to us. But that doesn't mean that infrared doesn't exist. I mean, we're now able to perceive it by, you know, infrared telescopes and infrared ways of picking that up. We don't hear in radio waves, per se. Um, But that doesn't mean that radio waves don't exist. It just means that for us on a day-to-day basis, they're not very useful in doing the things that humans need to do, you know, gathering food and reproducing and what have you. I mean, when you talk about like the mountain people and the uh the stream people and the you know, the idea of, you know, a fountain having a connection to the divine, I think we always have to be reminded of the fact that the things we possess to view and understand the world are very well adapted to humans hunter-gatherers and the Fertile Crescent trying to survive till tomorrow. And that's actually a pretty limited set of uh of understandings. I mean it's it's incredible but it's also uh pretty limited, right?
1: Mhm. I would look at another angle of that as well, but yes, our, uh, I I'm so glad you said the brain is a simple set of heuristics to grasp the world around us. I wrote it down um because that really leads into the behavior change talk later. Another angle of that is that our brain is a it's like a meaning-making organ or a, or a pattern-seeing organ. And so our brain also makes sense of things that may not exist. <laughs> so our, on one hand, our brain doesn't see things that may exist. Also, our brain does see things that may not exist. Precisely. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, <laughs> and
0: that's, sp- that's spooky and bizarre sometimes, right?
1: Uh-huh. Yeah. yeah. So I guess, you know, in my own spirituality, so my wife leads uh, wilderness quests. This is a big chunk of work in our year is that we go off for two weeks into the interior of BC with a group of people. And Carmen teaches the history and sort of cross-cultural practices of going into the wilderness. And then these people go out for four days with no food. And they have a tarp, a sleeping pad, a sleeping bag, and four gallons of water. And they go off for four days without food. When Carmen did this, uh, she told me a story of of one of her first quests. She had this incredible vision of circles. She had this incredible um, vision of circles. Wherever she looked, she, she saw circles. And then years later, I read an article that described this common visual hallucination that happened in trance states or in religious states, which was people see circles. So this was sort of like a known aspect. It's a common aspect of the human brain. That This sort of pattern emerges from it. In my own emerging spirituality, I, as a younger man, I would have said, well, here's the fact of it. This shows that that's, uh, you know, just a it's just a ghost in the machine. You shouldn't pay any attention to it. We should let rationality rule the day. <laughs> and older me is more interested in, you know, this is a, a condition. This is part of the human condition. How do we then best live with it? How do we find joy in it? How do we find meaning in it? How do we find utility in it? And also, you know, since I was raised an atheist, I am suspicious of spirituality. Also, how do we uh, try to avoid historical harm? So what I really don't want is a world uh, of witch burning or a world of homophobia. As our world continues to decentralize uh, authority down to smaller and smaller levels, I don't want to go back to these old harmful patterns. I want to have a blossoming I, i'm hoping for a blossoming spirituality, not a kind of constraining one
0: as the pottery major who ended up with mm-hmm. a, a systems degree <laughs> yeah speaking yeah. to the speaking to the engineer who ended up yeah. with a planning degree <laughs> yeah I, I think we both have this history <laughs> of struggling with the uh, you know the abstract and the concrete sequential in a sense. I think we both have this tendency to want to apply rationality to things but yet what I find is when you get down to the human level when you get down to the you know the block level the individual level the family level that stuff kind of fades away doesn't it it does become more about the pottery and the more abstract notions of what life is the goat that is now part of your spaghetti, the cow that's you know now part of the, the, the family meal, that is a meaning that defies rationality. And I, I think that's where our attempt to make the world rational breaks down at that level. It, it's almost like Newtonian physics. Newtonian physics applies across space and time until you get to the very small or the very, very large. And then it then it breaks down into this different set of uh, of realities. I kind of feel like that's what we're getting at here no
1: yeah, absolutely, and I think so much of the harm that we do, <laughs> whether it's through planning or engineering or uh, drug policy or poverty policy, is because Newtonian physics is breaking down and instead of being the scientist that says, okay well maybe we should look for a different sort of physics here we just keep pounding Newtonian physics over and over and over again onto these problems that it doesn't work for. (laughs) So my gosh,
0: that's a, that's a brilliant insight. Yes. That's what, that's exactly what we do. We're like, damn it, this will fit.
1: (laughs) Yeah. 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 So what, what I say is that if, if what you're doing doesn't work, it doesn't matter if you do it bigger or faster or harder, it's not going to work because it doesn't work. <laughs> so what you have to do is do something different, not bigger, right? And of course, this is so much of Strongtown's work is pointing out the, it's like, this is not working. Let's do something different. There's a beautiful essay. I think it's called The Art of Muddling Through. I think it was written in the 50s or something by this guy who was looking at management. And basically to to summarize it, you know, he's like, we have we have one story and that is that you should build a spreadsheet and find all the factors that are important and then weight all the factors and then do the math and determine the correct approach. So that's what we're taught in management school is the correct approach. Once you hit reality, of course you would end up with a spreadsheet that was thousands or millions of cells and demanding that you input weightings <laughs> and factors that you have no possible way of coming up with accurately. And that remains the only story though. So instead of, instead of being like, okay, well, that approach clearly doesn't work. All we do is make bigger spreadsheets and make ever larger kind of like leaps of faith for our weightings and many more assumptions that we build in and stuff. So I- instead of doing something different and saying, wow, this model of decision-making actually doesn't work, we just double down on it.
0: I'm going to tell you a story that is going to, I think, be deeply embarrassing to me. I remember being a young man and I, I don't know why I had multiple prospects. I, I guess, I don't know. Maybe I was a, maybe I was a sly young man, but I remember having a list of like different girls that I was interested in dating in my very like hyper rational mind. I said, how do I make a decision? I realized that this is going to sound kind of crude, but cut me some slack. Cause I was a teenager. You know, I went through and I, I had my own like, criteria. Like, okay, I don't remember exactly what the criteria were. I'm sure they were not all like flattering. They certainly wouldn't be the criteria a 45 year old man would have. But at the time I went through and I remember like actually going through this list in a very thoughtful way and, and coming to a decision like this is the person I should date. I remember going to school thinking like, I- I'm going to now focus on this person and I'm going to ask them out and go through all that. And someone else who was on the list, came up to me and got angry with me and said, you're just messing around. Are you going to ask me out or not? And I'm like, (laughs) yeah, I guess I am. I'll ask you out. Do you want to go out? And all of a sudden my whole list went away and it was just like that person. I say that because it was very clear that in my like rational mind, I could come up with all kinds of good reasons and, and I could back justify whatever I wanted to do. And I could tell myself, oh, I'm so thoughtful and rational. But when it came down to like this girl looking in my eyes and saying, hey, come on, I'm like, okay, yeah. Like, you know, all that rationality just went out the window. And I responded to like a whole different set of incentives. And it was a, it was a good thing that I did.
1: Yeah. How
0: much are we just <laughs> fooling ourselves? You know, the way that like a teenage Chuck Marone fooled himself not only that we are rational, but that there is a rational way to actually do this stuff?
1: Well, first off, Chuck, I do want to say <laughs> you clearly anticipate that, <laughs> that yes, the, many people will see that this is not the way that you select romantic partners. And it's not especially, you know, there is an emerging understanding, I would say, also in our culture, that this is far too much of how our culture treats women as just sort of like mathematical bits we can slot in and make decisions about, right? So uh, obviously you you understand kind of the grossness of this teenage thing, right? But it's so sad. This is the story that you were given. This is the notion of decision-making that you thought was like the best there was. You know, that we can actually build a culture (laughs) in which a teenage boy will do this. It's, it's, yeah. Oh,
0: I thought I was being thoughtful. Yeah. 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 Yeah, exactly. I mean, I don't, I don't want to just act emotionally. I'm going to actually think this out, you know? (laughs) Yeah.
1: (laughs) I want to just take a side talk into rationality for just a second. You know, when I started working in sustainability, when I started working in behavior change, what I do is I, I find, uh, like say I read a book and the book is interesting. And so then I, when I finish the book, I go through the bibliography and find all the things that I found particularly interesting. And then I go read those and then I go through those, you know, so I spent, when I was in design school, I, instead of doing my homework, I spent three years reading, you know, what is essentially kind of a, like a hyperlinked paper <laughs> internet, you know, that I would just go jumping from the links in the bibliography to the next thing. And I did the same thing with behavior change, that i was I was working. I started work with community- based social marketing. and so I read the Bible on community-based social marketing. And then I went to the uh, the Endnotes and started reading everything that sounded relevant in the endnotes. And so I did that for uh, for three years as well, where I was just I had the best job where through kind of a court of fate, I wasn't really supervised. I was just paid handsomely and given an office. And so I spent 3 years just reading, running pilot projects and calling up researchers. There's this incredible power. I would call up like psychologists, these rock stars of behavior change. I would call them up and say, "I'm with the government. You should talk to me." <laughs> you know, and then I would ask them I would ask them questions. I spoke to this one guy so, yeah, he's a famous, you know, if you read the literature on, on behavior change, you're going to be reading a lot of his stuff. So I, I was asking him about the conscious and the subconscious and rational and irrational behavior. And he said, you need to be clear that the subconscious is not irrational. The subconscious is perfectly rational, but it may operate on different ideas of the important factors. So the subconscious's notion of rational choice is different from the conscious mind's notion of rational choice. It's still like it's not acting randomly. <laughs> it's just paying attention to maybe different things that it thinks are important. I think that's a super important thing to keep in mind as we talk about behavior change. And then going on to this notion of rationality, it's a huge story. We're, this is a huge narrative of our culture is that we are rational beings and it's entirely incorrect. And we built everything on this story. We've built our government on the story. We build our, our cities on the story. We've built our idea of democracy on the story. We've built our economics on the story, right? We've built everything on the story and the story is wrong. And so that means none of the things actually work that well because they're based on an incorrect story. And then we go in, it's like, wow, these things aren't working very well. We should, we should fix them. And we're trying to fix them using the wrong story. And so, and so they still don't work, right? It's like we're trying to patch a wound with the wrong bandage. It's just, it's a mess. The story is totally wrong. We are not analytical. You know, maybe we could say something like analytical instead of rational because of this subconscious thing that I talked about. So, but what we don't do is make these giant spreadsheets that are super accurate and thoughtful and make all our decisions based on math. We don't do that. We never have, <laughs> and we never will. Our brain is not built for it at all.
0: Let me ask you this, just culturally. I know you are at least somewhat familiar with Star Trek.
1: Only a little bit, because uh, since we were hippies living in the bush, we didn't have television. Oh, yeah,
0: that's true. Yeah.
1: <laughs> so, but I I have seen some.
0: The idea of the character of Spock is interesting, because I've come to view the character of Spock not as someone I would aspire to, because I actually think like in the past, there were times when I'm like, I wish I could be more like Spock. I wish I actually, because I wind up being Captain Kirk all the time, where like my passions dominate things and I get real excited about stuff. And I'm like, come on, Scotty, more power, let's go. I really would rather be Spock where it's like, okay, let me sit back and analyze this and understand and act rationally And maybe I'm reading too much into Gene Roddenberry, but I I almost feel like the idea that Spock is not a human, you know, he's a Vulcan, he's like a different species, and he's half human, half Vulcan, but the idea of the Vulcan in general is kind of this nod to this notion that humans are not this way. Humans are actually wired fundamentally different, and I, I think we're fooling ourselves if we think that we could ultimately discipline our brains or discipline ourselves to be Spock. In fact, let me take it a step further. I think when we get into the realm of like city planning and decision-making in public policy, we actually delude ourselves when we pretend that our decisions are wholly rational. We're doing this because it is the smart, rational, thoughtful thing to do as opposed to this, which is just based on emotion and tribalism and what have you. How do you react to that? Am I on the right track in in thinking about that?
1: Yeah, I I think it's a a great way to put it, that it's Spock is not human. (laughs) And, And that was deliberately chosen as like kind of a narrative foil, right? But it's like, yeah, no, he's not human. And also, as I recall from Star Trek, there is always this sort of Wizard of Oz aspect that Spock is always trying to understand these human emotions, you know? And there's these kind of, poignant times when Spock has sort of like a, oh, I think I might be feeling something, you know, as if he's finally getting a heart. Right. Yeah, I I think you're absolutely right. And again, we spend so much time with this story in our city building that our choices are rational. They are the best, they are whatever. And yeah, it would be amazing to what if we kind of rewrote, I don't know where we'd begin, but what if we kind of rewrote the story to just talk about meaning and relationships and emotion and, and not try to make any arguments (laughs) that are, that are rational. What would it be like to kind of recast the story of like in Victoria, we just built a new bridge that doubled the budget and took whatever, five years longer than three years, I think longer than it was supposed to. Right. So what if we told that story through relationship instead of through rationality? I don't know where we'd end up, but I do know that this, the way we do it is that's not physically how our brain works.
0: I can answer that question. To me, the uh, pushback point I get when I take these ideas beyond, you know, Ruben and I rambling and chatting about them is that it becomes inefficient, Chuck. It's not an efficient way to do things. I've actually gotten to the point now where I've able to see that for what it is which is, you know, we have to make a decision at some point and we need a mechanism to justify that decision and move on. It might not make any sense and it might not be reasonable. It might not be the best thing. We, because of, like you said, the way we've structured our society, our economy, everything, we have to make decisions and go. The right thing to do be damned. This is how we reach that. I've come to actually see that as almost like a manifestation of the macro emotion We must be efficient. We must move on. The idea, the art of muddling your way through something is anathema because of the scale we're working at, in a sense.
1: There's this really important book in environmental design called Cradle to Cradle, which was written by William McDonough and Michael Braungart. They introduced the notion to me there of uh, good versus less bad. This is the crux of the argument I get into a lot. You know, I was just having one in our local municipal Facebook group. It's an argument I've had on Strong Towns in the comment section many times that I, I'm not interested very often in having less bad arguments. You know, how do we make this stupid idea slightly less stupid? That's, that's, just, that's just not how I want to spend my life. right? Right. So I'm actually interested in thinking about what would good be. You know, of course, it's it's just a fantasy world I live in in my garden, basically, because the world is certainly not moving that way at all. It is immediately these these questions of oh, but it's not efficient. You know, then we start looping in Nassim Taleb, right, who <laughs> talks about resilience and what does efficient mean? It means brittle. It means easily broken. It means we're trying to maximize everything. We're always trying to maximize everything. So then we look around our world and what is it that we're trying to maximize? Oh, well so we have granite countertops now and we have this super fancy oven and we have all of the kitchen appliances and we have a new car and we have like every room of the houses of our culture is jammed full of this crap that people like me designed most of it's made out of sawdust and glue like it's just a world of junk not a world of richness and meaning when you roll back to the 70s one kind of the inequality lines started really diverging, you know, like this is when people felt like they knew who they were and where they belonged and what they were doing in life. And they didn't have granite countertops, (laughs) you know, there was a lot less stuff overall. So when people are talking about efficiency, what they're really talking about is that it's like, I demand the continuation of furniture made out of sawdust and countertops that are so hard, they break my glassware. They're fighting for their right to keep on consuming meaningless stuff. Whereas what Taleb would tell us to do is to do less. Like now that we can do anything, we must do less. So if we had a smaller scale life in a lot of ways, we wouldn't need to be grasping for every like gram of efficiency. And we could actually kind of relax a bit, take more time with things, you know, not worry so much. (laughs) <laughs> and that, I, I think, might be working towards things that are actually good instead of just things that are less bad.
0: Let me reassert the systems analyst and the engineer over the potter and the, and the planner. I actually think if we did that, we would make better decisions. If we muddled our way through, in a sense, as opposed to create this facade of efficiency and rationality around the direction we're going... Not only do I think like the hippie side of us, we'd live a life that is, is smaller and more delicious, but we'd, we'd actually, I think at the end of the day, if we're trying to get to like the best outcome, I think we might actually get there. As opposed to the one that we, we developed through a spreadsheet that analyzed everything and plotted the right course and listed steps one, two, three.
1: Yeah. What is it? The value of everything and the worth of nothing?
0: Yeah. I read this book once about the Great Depression. I think it was called something like The Myth of the Great Depression. What it attacked is the idea that this was like the worst time. I remember this with my grandfather when he would talk about, because he was in the Marines in World War II. So if you back that up, his like formative years were during the Great Depression. He, I I know for a while, like left his house and lived in a barn because the, the people would feed him he needed to eat. And if he worked the farm for this guy, the guy would basically let him sit at the table with the family in the evening and eat. And then he could sleep in the barn. That's, that was the deal. That was basically his pay, his food and, and board. So you talked to my grandfather about this period of time. He had just the most amazing stories. And they were all like happy and good. And you know, yeah, times were bad, times were tough, but... And, and his butt was always along the lines of, I did better than most. And, and I'm thinking, you lived in a barn. You know, you did better yeah. than most. <laughs>
1: yeah, laboring from dawn to dusk. Yeah, exactly, exactly. <laughs> Basically, his
0: stories all reflected, A, how fortunate he felt, and B, how full and happy like his life was he passed away in 2011. And I'd say the last like five, six of years of his life were, were not very good in terms of the standard thing that you see elderly people go through today with the social isolation. And, you know, he wasn't in good health and he had poor eating habits and they kind of cascaded on him and he became grumpy and, you know, difficult to be around. And, and that had, you know, the effect of having fewer people around and All of those things, I just put in perspective like this notion that how do we get to the part when you're 85 and you look back and say, that was the best time in my life? You know, that it was the 10 years that you lived in a barn and struggled to find food and, we're off in the Pacific fighting the Marines and, and, you know, how, how do those become the great years? Is it just correlated with youth or is it something else? And this book that I read kind of correlates it with this something else, which is essentially like a slower life of meaning.
1: Yeah. Can you imagine, like, can you imagine trying to reframe our policy decisions around that? And uh, again, this is, this is me being utopian, right? Because, Our worldview in this culture is just rotten from top to bottom. Like, so my touchstone of the worst job in the world is the people who sell cell phones at a kiosk in the mall. (laughs) Like that's when I think about.
0: (laughs) Like we'll we'll know that you're at the end when when we find you doing that. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Exactly. And you know, and they may be that's me projecting on them. They may be perfectly happy, etc. But the fact that that is considered even legal that we can do that to human beings you know that our culture thinks that this is a reasonable way to employ human beings in the pursuit of life and happiness (laughs) you know and just like your grandfather like much of my life is is toil you know where i'm looking out the window it's like crap you know the grass is getting away from me again i gotta do this seeding and that pulling and this you know I'm feeling like I I need to make bacon again. I haven't made any salami. Like, you know, I feel like in many ways, my life feels like a litany of failures. And yet also, it's common for us to sit down to a dinner in which the majority of the food on our plates has come from from our own hands. And it's not unusual for us to sit down where every single part of that meal is something that we raised or grew. And that is just like, that is, well, my best friend wrote a book. He wrote The Hundred Mile Diet, which in the US is called Plenty. That was a shocking idea 10 years ago to actually be so close to your, to your region and your, your local economy or to your, your home, your home or homestead, you know, that this was possible. So instead of having a life of, of hard work, but this incredible rich connection. Instead, we put people inside the mall, not even in a store, but in a kiosk. And we make them, you know, with financial incentives, hawk an absolutely unnecessary gadget. You know, and even though like I'm talking to you on a smartphone, the notion of just like kind of constant replacement that you got to get a new one every six months or every year or whatever, you know, just like that job is so utterly meaningless. It's corrosive to their humanity. It's a literal waste of a human being's life. How can we be these people that waste other people?
0: Let me ask you this. Obviously, we're not going to talk about public engagement because we're, 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 we're like, we're up against the clock as it is, but we'll reschedule okay. and we'll do that because, um, because I think it's important and I think we should do a dozen of these podcasts. I feel like part of the argument that we're making or we're, we're we're inching toward, it fits really well with someone who lives in a remote place in British Columbia or or lives in a smaller town in central Minnesota. How does someone from San Francisco relate to this or someone from New York, you know, Manhattan relate to this? I feel like there is a relationship here. And we should maybe in hearing how you would Because it's more than just, hey, you know, why are you living there? Move. It's something else. What would you say to someone who, you know, lives in a San Francisco or a New York? Like, how does this relate to them?
1: This year's quest that Carmen led, there was a woman there from Brooklyn. We had a lot of interesting conversations (laughs) Uh, because of that just incredibly broad spread from where we were sleeping in these little log cabins in a super remote, you know, mountain range in the interior of BC to Brooklyn. Like that that spread does not get much larger. There's a couple little data points I want to put out. I read this thing that I've tried to verify and I I can't, but I believe it to be true nonetheless. (laughs) So this guy uh, is writing about farming and he said that 100 years ago, so this is maybe 125 or 150 years ago now, 100 years ago, 70% of the food that fed New York City came from within seven miles of the city. Seven miles. So when you think about, I don't know how big New York City was at that time, like a million people or something like that, that would have created like... An incredible amount of intimacy. Most of these people in the city perhaps would have come from farms. They would know how life proceeded. <laughs> you know, they would know what life was. And so when the farm cart comes in with a big load of pumpkins or uh, you know, cages and cages of chickens, they know that seven miles away, they can picture the operation that's happening there. They understand their place in the wheel of life even though they're living in this massively dense city. At, right? the,
0: at the very least, they would be in touch with the, the rhythms of the seasons, the way that I think you and I, uh, yes. before we yeah. even went on the, the live, we, we talked about the rhythms of fall. Now, I follow you. Keep going.
1: Yeah. So that's kind of one data point. Another data point, again, that I can't verify. I swear <laughs> that I was at a talk that Jane Jacobs gave and she said, we will resettle the cities. I feel very sorry for New York and San Francisco. I think it is impossible to have a sane, like a mentally healthy human existence in arrangements like that. If we want to have mentally healthy human existence, we need to change the arrangement. (laughs) So I understand that's not gonna happen. No one is going to be voting to disband San Francisco, right? But there are several factors that are kind of conspiring towards this. Uh, You know, one is just unaffordability is driving people out of cities, climate change, energy constraints, you know, resource depletion. There's a bunch of factors, you know, what Taleb would talk about the economy all the time, unforeseen risk. Like there are a bunch of things that are all kind of swirling gently on the edges that are eventually going to come into play. I don't know what the future is going to look like, but I'm quite sure it's not going to look like this.
0: There's two kind of ecologically competing narratives that I I find interesting. The one is that as you scale larger in size, you become more efficient and more productive, and that's kind of like the pro-Big City argument. The kind of one that goes along with that is, well, we don't have dinosaurs a thousand feet tall ruling the world. There's There's a finite... Uh, spot where that starts to break down, and you get a certain level of of fragility that that doesn't adapt well to change. Like you, I, I don't know where that line is, but it seems to me like the villages around New York and San Francisco that Jane Jacobs talked about are much different places than you know what the Yimbys are trying to do with housing in Austin, and and you know what you've done in Vancouver, quite frankly with some of the foreign investment and the, the, the empty condo units that uh, are all sold out, my gut says that that is at a fragile scale. And that may just be my small town bias looking at it, but I have a hard time understanding it in any other framework.
1: I want to draw out what you said, that you don't know where that line is. This is an argument that I think we run into a lot in the world. I've searched for ways to describe this, and I have yet to come up with a good one. But <laughs> the way that I describe it is, you know, imagine you're in an airplane at 30,000 feet and there's a catastrophic accident and the side of the plane blows open, you're sucked out and you begin falling from 30,000 feet. So we know where this is going to end. What happens in the comments section is that people start demanding, they're pounding their fingers on the table, demanding to know when you're going to hit the ground. And if you can't tell them the exact second that 30,000 fall is going to end up on the ground, then they're like, oh, well, you don't know anything then, you know, and the whole discussion just gets thrown out the window. (laughs) So, you know, before the financial collapse, there was a bunch of people saying like, this is not going to end well. Look at all these factors. This is super stressful, right? And people are just like, well, tell me the day I should pull my investment out of the stock market so that I maximize my returns and maximize my safety, <laughs> you know? And if you can't do that, then you're an old crank on the internet and we're going to ignore everything you say. This, this idea that we have to have a line, it's like, I, I don't know where this line is. Uh, but I can say, I'm quite sure that San Francisco is not going to look like San Francisco forever. <laughs> you know, this situation is going to change. Like when something doesn't make sense, what eventually happens is that it stops making sense, right? It, it can't continue.
0: Well, that change becomes self evident after the fact. You know, i.e., the housing crisis, right? I, I remember sitting here in this stew of insanity. I always have to say this: I did not call the housing crisis. Like I didn't say, "Here's what's going to happen." And here's all. But I remember sitting here going. Like we can't continue to do developments like this. This is nutty. Like this doesn't make sense. At one point we had over a hundred years of developed lots, capacity, a hundred years worth of capacity. And I said, they're worth zero. Like, why would any sane person ever do another development? Yet we were had developers lined up to do more. That was the pushback that I got was, well, Chuck, you know, these people. They're the ones risking their money. They're the ones who are. They know what they're doing. You know why? Why do? You, why do you think you know anything? It was almost maddening because it was a stew of craziness. Yet everyone wanted to believe in it while we were part of it.
1: Well, and this is why I love your work so much is that you uh, you have a grasp of reality, and so the conversations, the things you write about, and the way that you're approaching things is based in reality, <laughs> which is. <laughs> you know, it's kind of amazing that that's something to be excited about, (laughs) but we, yeah, but we live in this time of magical thinking, you know, that it's, yeah, it's rare and, and it's a, it's a gift.
0: I try. Sometimes I feel like I, (laughs) uh, I I am lost and uh, wandering, but uh, it's people like you that give me some guideposts and occasionally are the lighthouse when I need it. So I appreciate that. (laughs) We're over the mark of what is a sociably acceptable podcast length. So, how about <laughs> how about we do this? Because we didn't even get to the topic we were going to talk about. We'll put something on the calendar here in a, a couple of weeks and uh, sit down, and we'll we'll start with public engagement and, uh, okay. and go from there.
1: <laughs> yeah, and end in the mystical.
0: End in the mystical. <laughs> yeah, I, I I should have known we were going off and. Uh, you know, we started there. So, <laughs> but we have a lot to catch up on.
1: Yes, yes we do. What what a pleasure to talk with
0: you. It's very nice to talk to you, friend. Let's do this again soon, okay? Okay. All right. Take care, Ruben. Have a good day. Bye-bye, Jack. Bye. And thanks everyone for listening to the Strong Towns podcast. Keep doing what you can to build a strong town. Take care. <laughs> Taking risk is a necessity
1: to becoming rich. It's also a necessity to go bankrupt.
0: Bill, 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 that's
1: a start. Oh, la, la.
0: They know that America's one big pothole right now. Oh, la, la. Just to echo what you said, there are no silver bullet solutions.
1: Chuck Marone, this has been fascinating.